You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome to Strong Towns Podcast. Glad that you're tuning in this week. I, I want to preview a couple of quick things before we get going. The first, next week we're going to be up on Minnesota's Iron Range, a place in northern Minnesota where we are going to be spending a whole week, uh, the Blandon Foundation and an organization called the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board have sponsored us to spend a week in that uh, area sharing our message uh, and also putting our message into local context. So next week, our, our entire content stream is going to be devoted to the Iron Range. I hope you tune in. I hope you find something valuable in this. Uh, it, it won't be customized to you unless you're from the Iron Range, but hopefully we're going to be uh, onboarding a whole bunch of new people into our conversation from that part of the world and learning a little bit about what we can do to kind of help the Strong Towns message become uh, you know, a more active role in a place. This is a, a model. We're going to go try this out. Uh, but my hope is that we can do this kind of thing all over the country. And so next week when you're inundated by Iron Range stuff, that's what's going on. Uh, please tune in. I hope you enjoy it. If not, we'll be back to like regular programming the week after. I also want to let everybody know that I'm going to be at CNU 24 in Detroit. That's coming up in June. In fact, today we announced that I will be hosting uh, once again the Next Gen Debates. Uh, for those of you that have not been to one of these debates, it's kind of a mashup between Oxford debating and American Idol. We've got snarky judges, we've got loud music, uh, and we've got some intellectual rigor that we try to fit in a little bit too. It will be a lot of fun. We're hoping to be able to uh, live stream them this year by video through our site. So stay tuned. We're going to have more on that in the days and weeks coming up. Um, third quick thing. Uh, we've got the Anti-Fragile Book Club that gets started here in a couple of weeks. If you're not signed up for that, uh, go to our website. Just do a search for Anti-Fragile. You'll get the book club. You can get signed up. We are going to spend some time going through that book together and, and putting it in the, uh, the context of Strong Towns. I think it's going to be a learning exercise for me and, and, and for everybody else. This week, I want to talk about uh, the, the term smart growth. And the term sprawl, these are two terms that I never use. I, I, I don't use them to describe anything meaningful for me. I don't use the term to describe me. I don't use the term to describe what we're trying to do here. And I wrote about this and, and really kind of <laughs> had a reaction maybe I wasn't uh, prepared for or wasn't considered. So, you know, yeah, I made a bunch of people angry that would normally would like be inclined to like us. So the smartest thing to do, Chuck, is to, uh, you know, bring this to the podcast for anyone who wasn't already alienated and see if we can alienate you here. Um, no, uh, but I do think this is a, a conversation, you know, worthy of uh, a further exploration. So let me set this up by talking about a meeting I had a few years ago. Um, this was maybe back in 2011. Uh, I was invited to come and meet with a group of people who, who really wanted to explore how to communicate things, particularly things to conservative people. 
I, I realize that our politics are very, people would say they're very polarized today. They don't feel polarized to me in the way they were back in 2010. 2010 was, you had a Republican side, you had a Democrat side, you had conservatives, you had progressives or liberals. They hated each other. They were out for each other's destruction. And that was like the dominant political theme, right? Pick a side, hate the other. We still have that. And I'm not pretending we, we don't have that today. I'm not pretending that's died down, but that's kind of been replaced a little bit by crazy, right? That's kind of been replaced by a, uh, a, a conversation that has, you know, I think become more revolutionary in some ways. And, uh, you know, while I welcome that, while I welcome the dialogue expanding beyond simply what I think was just dumb partisanship, you know, the, uh, a thing that got me from being someone who was uh, at one point rabidly interested in politics to mildly interested in politics when I when I started this blog in in 2008 to you know disgusted and and you know not even following it to any degree I'm actually finding you know the current conversation to be uh, for all its craziness and really all its its mean spirited and just like base craziness. Uh, I'm finding it to be like a, a better, I, I feel like, I feel like some of the ice is melting and you know, the ship is going to start moving again and I'm hopeful that it will be in a good direction, but at least, at least the ship is moving. Right. But back in 2011, uh, it was very much, you know, how does one side talk to the other? And the conversation we had in this meeting was, well, Chuck, you're saying things that we agree with. You're saying things that that, you know, are the same thing as what we're saying, but you say them in a different way that conservatives like it. How do, how do you do that? And really the, the, the dialogue, and it was, it was a very strange day. I like these people. They're very nice. They're very intelligent. We, we get along really well. Um, but it was a weird conversation because it really was Chuck, what's the secret handshake? You know, what, what are the terms that you use to reach these people? Um, could we learn those too? And then essentially like be able to trick them uh, because, you know, we're, we're all saying the same thing, but you say it like some type of Pied Piper and they, they listen to you and follow you. Uh, when we say it, they don't, they don't listen. What, how do we do it the way you do it? And I kind of, you know, I, there was, there was a part of me that at the time kind of, okay, well, here's, you know, here's what I do and here's what I say and here's how I say it. And you're free to copy, you know, what I do, but here's, you know, here's what I, here's the way I'm doing things. But there was also a part of me though, that realized that, you know, maybe we don't totally agree. Um, you know, maybe our, our Venn diagram overlaps a lot, but maybe there's some key parts where it doesn't. Maybe there's some spots where we see things in a slightly different way and that those are substantive differences. I think the term sprawl is, is one of them. Uh, I, I've never been an anti-sprawl person. I, you can search through all the stuff that I've written. Uh, you can search through all the podcasts. I, I, I don't use the term. I don't use the term to describe things I don't like. I don't use the term to describe, you know, the, the things we should be against. I, I, I don't use the term. I've never used it. I, I don't think it's very descriptive. It's certainly not descriptive of the problem as I see it, right? Now, I, I know it's going to bother a lot of you. And 
I, you know, I'll, I'll maybe say at this point, I maybe should have said this at the beginning. If you're a person who describes yourself as a smart growth advocate and anything that would be like the remote, have any remote critique of, of smart growth is going to be personally offensive and, 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 you know, freak you out. You probably shouldn't listen to the rest of this podcast. Like I said, the Venn diagram of where we overlap is, is very robust. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of place there. So let's just stay friends. I, I like you, you like me, uh, you know, we've way more places to agree than not. So just, you know, you can take this podcast off the same thing with the people who hate sprawl. If you think like sprawl is the, the way you describe what is wrong with the world and that anyone who's going to question that is got to be crazy in some way, then again, if you like what we're saying in other places, just take this podcast off. This one's not going to matter. <laughs> it's not going to help you in any way. Uh, just go about your business. Uh, we'll be back next week and you can interpret the things that I say <laughs> to mean the things that you think. And, and you know, for, for 90 plus percent, we're, we're going to be just fine that way. So cool. Go ahead. You know, I'll, I'll give you a second, shut this off, move on for the rest of you. Uh, sprawl to me was a term that I grew up with that was used by, uh, how do I say this? you know, by, by snobby elite people to describe my world. And so right away, it was never a term that I was going to use. When, when I started on my professional path, asking difficult questions of myself, difficult questions of the work that I was doing, which, you know, quite frankly, was building a lot of the stuff that people would categorize as sprawl. I was certainly living in places, in a place that people would categorize as sprawl, right? Um, you know, when I started to uh, talk about this, I didn't use that word. And I didn't use that word because it, it was someone else's language. It was someone else's word to describe my deficiencies, right? It, it's, it's like, <clears throat> you know, my dad grew up with polio. And, you know, he's got a, he's got a bad leg. He walks with a limp. Uh, you know, some people would call him crippled, right? I've never heard my dad describe himself as crippled. I've, I've never heard, I've, I've never heard that term. I've, I've never, I grew up and if you asked me to describe my dad, I would never, I would not use that term. It's not like the term I, I grew up with, even though when other people would use it to describe him, I would understand in kind of a way what they meant, but I didn't agree with it, right? Like it just didn't sit right with me. The term sprawl never, it, it, I had the same reaction. It, it didn't describe either, you know, what I see as the problem or, uh, you know, the, the, the things that I uh, kind of experienced myself. Now, let me flesh that out a little bit. So it's more than just a reactive kind of, uh, kind of vibe here. Because yes, you know, if someone comes along and describes you derisively uh, in an elitist kind of way, you know, you live in sprawl, bad, uh, you know, you're, you're going to circle the wagons with your tribe, right? And you're going to say, oh, I like this, <laughs> You know, uh, you can be snobby and, and say you don't, but I don't really care. You know, screw you, right? That, that, that's, that's like a natural reaction. And maybe I, I have that reaction a little bit. Maybe I, maybe I do. Maybe, I mean, that's certainly where I come from. Uh, you know, that's where my upbringing is. And so maybe there's a part of that. I think I would like to think that I'm a little bit beyond that, but, but maybe I'm not. And I'll acknowledge that, that maybe I'm not. 
But when I started to question the work that I was doing as an engineer, some of the things that, uh, that I was working on, my questioning was never along the lines of sprawl, right? Like, oh, this is ugly, or oh, this is dumb, or oh, this is chewing up the environment, or oh, this is making us all fat, or, you know, it was, it was never along those lines. And quite frankly, most people don't think along those lines. But uh, nonetheless, I know a lot of you do, but my, my critiques were not along those lines. Mine were like, this doesn't work. Um, we're going broke. Like I, this, this project I'm working on doesn't make any financial sense. Like this is, this is dumb. This, this doesn't work. And you know, my, my gut reaction at first was, well, someone else must have figured this out, right? Like someone else must know what they're doing here. I, I'm, I'm clearly not seeing everything. And I've, my, my initial reaction was exactly what uh, I see engineers react to my presentation today, although less today than they did five years ago. Um, it's something that we call the quantum theory of economic development. Um, it's this idea, and this is my early days of engineering, like, okay, this project I'm working on might not make any sense. Uh, the last project I worked on didn't make any financial sense. The next project I'm working on, the finances clearly are ridiculous. But when you put all these together, they form this greater whole. Uh, you might not be able to measure it, thus the quantum part of it. But hey, uh, we all know that this works, so just keep doing it. The quantum theory of economic development. The, the, the engineering, economic development, planning profession like buys into this, right? It's, it's ridiculous. And I started to question it. I started to question it. But I didn't call it sprawl, right? I didn't call it sprawl. Uh, I, I, I identified the things that I saw that weren't working with it. And here's the thing. I saw that not working in places that people who hate sprawl called sprawl. I also saw it in places that people who hated sprawl called not sprawl, right? The places that people who are anti-sprawl would say, well, this is, this is good. This is the stuff we should be doing. I saw the same like dumb things, right? Like this doesn't make any financial sense either. And so to me, like the, the, the problem was not sprawl or not sprawl. Uh, it, was something, it was something very different. It was something very, very different. Now, I also will acknowledge being influenced by a presentation I saw at the American Planning Association conference. And maybe this is why I'm still a member of the APA. I'm not really sure. Every year I go through this existential crisis where I, I, I'm like, I'm just going to quit this year. <laughs> and then I don't. And I, I, I think I don't do it just so I have the ability to, to complain about it. Nonetheless, uh, one of the last APA conferences I went to, this is probably like 2004, somewhere in that time frame. There was a, a session, and the title of the session was something along the lines of Sprawl is Good. And it was billed as a debate between two people, one who would argue for that proposition, one that would argue against it. And of course, the person who was against, the person who did not like sprawl, spoke in the terms that, you know, everybody listens to podcast is probably very familiar with, right? Like sprawl is horrible. It's ugly. It destroys trees. It chews up the environment. It makes us fat. It creates congestion. It forces people to drive long distances. It, you know, yada, yada, yada. All, all the things that, you know, everybody uses to describe how bad, uh, you know, the American pattern of development is. Uh, this, this person was laying on thick and, you know, the, the crowd generally being very supportive of that was applauding and, you know, very happy. The person on the other side who, you know, was jeered at and, uh, you know, hissed at and all that to me was 
fascinating, just uh, like utterly, utterly fascinating because I already, I was not like an anti-sprawl person. I couldn't really put it into, into words. Like I, I couldn't really explain it, but this person got up and they showed how essentially every civilization and he went back thousands of years and showed, you know, basically diagrams from thousands of years ago that, that marked out the extent of different cities. So every city that was prosperous and successful, where there were things like upward mobility and things like, you know, people being able to get ahead, uh, where you had opportunity. All, all of these things were strongly correlated with the outward expansion of cities. As cities expanded outward, uh, they became more successful and that success was you know, distributed in a sense or was, was received or experienced by a, a broader and broader cross-section of the population. Horizontal expansion was part and parcel, was a component, was a very strong component of a city becoming successful. To me, that was like self-evident, right? It was very obvious. Cities have always experienced horizontal expansion. You know, by this isn't even controversial, right? Like cities expand outward. They do. They always have. Uh, and, and this is a very successful, this is a very healthy thing. If you had gone back to Manhattan in his original days and said, nope, there will be no outward expansion, it would never would have developed into Manhattan, right? It, it, it never would have. And it, it really is, and I've come, come to appreciate over the years, it is the ecosystem of that development pattern the, you know, the, the kind of bootstrap incremental, you know, lower threshold for a start kind of stuff going on out on the edge, uh, that interacted with the very wealthy places in the center to form this kind of symbiosis whereby cities worked, right? This is, this is kind of the way that cities grew incrementally. If you look at that, if you think about that for a sec, you say, well, well, okay, how is that not sprawl? And I, I really, I, I've struggled to kind of define and explain this. And I, I've, I've really kind of narrowed it down to the two big variables that I see different between this kind of horizontal expansion in a pre-automobile era, pre-modern development style era that was very healthy and the expansion that you know I was involved in building and that others have this visceral reaction to that some people have called sprawl now uh, that they don't like and, and that you know I think there's very strong evidence, particularly financial evidence, that this is a, a, a huge loser. There's a couple of, of key differences. And some of you may say, well, it's the automobile. No, it's, it's really not the automobile because you could have the automobile in successful cities. And there's a lot of successful cities around the world uh, that have, the, have accommodated the automobile that do just fine. So it's it's not the automobile. Some of you may say, well, it's it's zoning, right? And zoning is certainly a part of it, um, but it's not zoning, right? Some of you may say, well, it's it's the finances, Chuck. It's the way you know, it's the it's the way we go about building these things. Yeah, that's that's a part of it, but that's not like the core of it. There's two main things that I see being the difference between successful outward horizontal expansion and successful growth within a city and unsuccessful. The two are this. First, successful development builds uh, things incrementally. Pre-depression, when we built in a city, everything was built on an incremental basis. 
even the biggest skyscraper, the grandest monument, uh, all of these things were the result of other incremental investments around them that essentially justified their existence. I, I, I've, I've said this many times, you know, we didn't build the Roman Colosseum in the hopes that we would induce Rome, right? We didn't build uh, the Eiffel Tower in the hopes that we would induce Paris. We didn't build Tiananmen Square uh, in all its grandeur in the hopes, you know, that we would in, in, induce and you know Beijing, right? We didn't we didn't do it this way. Is it Beijing or Shanghai? I'm such an idiot when it comes to Eastern geography. Uh, I I I'm sorry. I I, I didn't. I, I could have just rolled with that, and you know I had a fifty fifty shot of being right, and now I'm a hundred percent wrong. Um, but I just haven't expressed my ignorance, and and I feel completely ignorant too. I have not been to China, and I I need to go. If there's someone from China listening to this who wants to, uh, you know, host a curbside chat, get a hold of me, we'll make it happen. That would be incredible. Uh, you know, we didn't build these things in order to induce the city, right? The, these things were the uh, kind of triumphant pinnacle in many ways of the incremental development that had gone on for a long time around them. And even when you get to like my little town here, uh, you know, we built this great, magnificent courthouse with marble steps and, you know, granite pillars and all this stuff. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, we didn't do that with the notion that we would get a city around it, right? When we were at that point, we built a tiny little courthouse made out of brick and we reserved the really grand spot and the, you know, the very visible spot at the end of the street and the the big building, we we did that when our population grew, when we were bigger, when we could actually afford it, when it made sense. We worked to there incrementally. Development today does not work incrementally. It's done all at once, big huge swaths, right? And planners are taught this, engineers are taught this. You know, we we build at scale. Um, you don't build one block at a time because that's not efficient, right? That's a that's a Think of how many times you have to mobilize your contractors. Think of how many times you got to stop traffic. If you're going to do it, go do, go, you know, go big or go home, right? Go out and do it. Do it in a big way. We build, you know, right now in Minnesota, we're building a billion dollar football stadium and then we're adding on to this huge park and we're doing all these like things to have this instant transformation, this big thing. And the idea is that it will then in a sense trickle down and there'll be all this other stuff that goes on around it now that we can look forward to over the next decade or two. That's how we make change. It's a very different uh, mindset. The second component, you know, building incrementally versus building in, in big chunks is the idea of building uh, on a continuum versus building to a finished state. Today, and this is where the zoning part comes in. When we build something, it's done. Like we, we don't envision anything, you know, a next step. In fact, I've, I've been in, in classes and seminars and, and lectures where we actually have to teach people like, okay, maybe you could phase this, right? Like maybe build this part of the building today and then this part of the building tomorrow. And I was like, oh, wow, what an idea. Because we just don't, we don't think that way, right? We build everything to a finished state. When, when I built my house, we built four bedrooms and three bathrooms. Now I didn't finish them all. Uh, but I, you know, we put them in, right? Like you, you built them. That was part of the house that was within the footprint of the house, three bathrooms, four bedrooms. Why? Because someday you'll need them, right? That's not the way my grandparents built their house. How do my grandparents build their house? My, oh, I have two kids, right? Four bedrooms, two kids. 
my grandparents had six kids. Their first house had one bedroom, right? That, that's insane. Did they, did they not think they would have kids? No, they knew they would have kids. They could just only afford a one-bedroom house. And then what did they do? Well, they, they, when they had the first kid, they did an addition. <laughs> and then, you know, as they had more kids, they did more additions. And then pretty soon they, they moved to an, the next-door lot, and they built a bigger house there. Uh, and, uh, you know, that one got additions as more kids were born. And then they moved to a third lot, and, and that one got even more additions to it, right? So the, the idea of, you know, building to a finished state is something, you know, that is kind of, in a sense, a byproduct of our affluence. If you've got enough money to dream big, then just build it. Build, build it so it's done, right? Traditional development patterns, patterns before sprawl, right, um, were built incrementally. So those first buildings would have been, you know, in a commercial sense, just like a little box, right? Something that we would not tolerate today. If you came into a city and said, I'm just going to build a little box and it's going to be very simple, they would say, no, you've, you've got to make this code and that code and you can't do it that way. And, uh, you know, we don't accept the, the bootstrap, the startup, right? It's got to be big. It's got to meet our standards because we assume now today that everything that's built is going to be that way forever. This is ridiculous, by the way, because what you see, you know, the byproduct of this is what? Um, when things aren't able to be built on incrementally, when you can't take a single family home and make it into a duplex, when you can't take a duplex and make it into a quad, when the quad can't be torn down and turned into, you know, an apartment building or condo units, what, what, you know, when you don't have that continuum of development, when zoning freezes what you have, locks it into place, puts it under glass, you know, puts it, freezes it in, puts it in amber, right? So nothing will ever change. What do you get? You get stagnation. And ultimately, you get decline and failure, right? Like, you know, what happens to the McDonald's when it reaches the end of its life? It, it just ends, right? A new McDonald's is built somewhere else, and that one just sits there, and it gets boarded up, and it gets, turns nasty. What happens to the big box store when it's over? What happens to the mall when it's done, right? Maybe there'll be some type of renewal. Maybe someone will go in and find some way to make use of it. But generally, there's a new mall somewhere else, and the old mall just kind of fades away. That's the difference, right? That's the difference. So when you build all at once in big chunks to a finished state, what you wind up with is a development pattern that stagnates and declines with no option for renewal. When you build things incrementally on a continuum of improvement, what you see is that you have a lot of room to make small investments, and those small investments can grow into something greater. And the act of it growing into something greater is what renews it and keeps it strong and prosperous. This has nothing to do with sprawl. Sprawl is like a byproduct of these things, right? The things that, the, what, what you would, what, what you, and I'm saying you, uh, hopefully that, like, hoping that like many of you agree with me, so it really can't lump you into you. Um, those of you who are obsessed with the term sprawl, and go around using the word sprawl and look at sprawl as being like the problem. Those of you who are in that category, uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're not getting the problem, the core problem. The core problem is not an outward expansion. The core problem is not building the, with, you know, accommodating the automobile, right? The core problem is not that this stuff looks ugly. 
It's not that it's making us fat or, you know, what, what unhealthy or what have you. It's not that it's destroying the, the, the climate. Those are byproducts of the problem. Sure. I mean, I, I, I will, uh, I will agree with you that, you know, those in themselves represent problems and symptoms, but the core problem is not that the core problem is that today in our affluence or perceived affluence, we build everything as if it is to a finished state. We assume that through our entire regulatory process, our entire financing process. And then once it's done, uh, we freeze it in glass, you know, under amber, we under just mixed like two metaphors, right? We put it under glass, we freeze it in amber, we lock it in and we never allow it to change until it just fails. That's the problem. That's the core problem. And that's the core problem that Strong Towns is trying to solve. It's why we're not an anti-sprawl organization. It's not sprawl. Sprawl, if, if anything, sprawl is like a symptom. It's like a side effect, right? What, what some of you out there would call sprawl is a side effect of these underlying mechanisms. And here's a cool thing. I can go talk to my dad who lives in sprawl, who shops in sprawl, who, you know, does not have a problem <laughs> with the development pattern he lives in. And I can talk to him about this and explain this to him in this way. And he's like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense because it does. It makes it, it makes a ton of sense. It is not uh, sneering. It's not jeering. It's not uh, us versus them. It's not pro-life, pro-choice, right? We're not trying to divide people. We're not trying to, um, it is an actual like intellectual diagnosis of the mechanics of why our cities are going broke. And that is what we need to focus on. That is what we actually need to get to. Now, I'm gonna pivot and talk a little bit about the smart growth thing because th this whole thing started because I, I, I was complaining of being called a smart growth advocate. In the newspapers, on TV and radio, a, a lot of times I will be described and strong downs will be described in terms of smart growth. You know, Charles Marone, smart growth advocate. Uh, or, you know, Strong Towns, a smart growth advocacy organization. And I just get bewildered by this. In fact, I complained to my wife, my wife, who's a news reporter, incredibly brilliant person. I, I said, you know, why do you guys call me this? I never use this term to describe myself. It is nowhere on our website. We, we, we never use it anywhere. Why are you using it? Why are you using this to describe me? Why do journalists do this? Is it just laziness? You know, what is it? And she's like, well, if you're not a smart growth advocate, what are you? <laughs> you know, I'm like, ouch, ouch. Cause you know, my, my re answer to that is like, I'm a strong towns advocate. And she's like, well, what is, what is that? Like, how is that, how is that different? Like, what do you, you know, how is that different than a smart growth advocate? And to me, it's, it's like, it's like dramatically different, right? It's dramatically different, but I will, I will give kudos to the smart growth people cause they essentially own this space, right? They own this conversation. They own this dialogue. And we are, but, you know, at this point in our evolution, but mere interlopers on the field that they have set up, right? So when we go into a city, oftentimes I am labeled a smart growth advocate and I get frustrated by that because I think it, it pigeonholes us or puts us in a place where we're not. I'm a strong towns advocate, which is different. And my aspiration is that someday uh, that will be a common enough understanding where we can actually be described <laughs> separately than, than the smart growth movement. Now, those of you that have visceral reaction to this have already tuned out. So I'm going to assume that all of you 
None of you are going to be super defensive about the term smart growth. You're all kind of on board. Uh, you know, I, the Venn diagram between smart growth and what I believe, it, there's a ton of overlap. Uh, I can sit in a room full of smart growth people and feel very at home. I can talk, they can talk. We can find lots of common ground. There's a few reasons though why I don't use the term to describe me. And I've never used the term and I've never even been tempted to use the term, right? Like I, I, I'm not a smart growth advocate. Um, the first is I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't use that term, right? Like I, I've never, I've never heard smart growth and said, yep, that's me. Um, and, and so, you know, it's frustrating for me when people use it to describe me, because like I said, you'll never find me using it to describe myself. It would be as if, you know, someone came along and we're going to start describing me in, in some way that I had never used before. Right. Um, that I didn't really even like define myself with. I'm, I'm, I'm searching for like a religious metaphor here, but it's like someone came along and described me as Lutheran, right? Well, I'm not Lutheran. I'm a Catholic and I'm a, I'm a, you know, that makes me a Christian is very close to being Lutheran, (laughs) but you know, there's fundamental differences between Lutherans and Catholics that, you know, for someone outside of the, the fold, like, you know, like a, like a, uh, someone of, you know, Muslim faith is not going to really know those differences. They're going to say, well, you're, you're Christian. You're all the same. Um, but of course, to me, there's, there's subtle differences that I wouldn't use. I, I think in some ways this is the, maybe a little bit the same, although those, those fundamental differences are very, very important. Um, another reason, uh, the, the, the term smart growth, very much like sprawl has a, uh, and I know, I know not all of you, I, I know, you know, uh, okay. I've already said that, you know, you're only hanging with us if you're not gonna be offended here. Right. There's, there's a certain elitist kind of notion with the term that I just, I have a, I have a visceral reaction to, right. Cause what's the opposite, the opposite of smart is dumb, right? I mean, that's not a, it's not a leap. If you say something is smart, what's not smart is dumb. I use this, I, I use these terms all the time, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not against calling something stupid. I, I do that quite regularly. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, I, it's not like I'm trying to just have everybody get along here, but there is a certain, uh, condescending notion to the term smart that I just don't react to because like I said, I'm not a smart growth advocate. I don't think that makes me dumb. And I, I, you know, I, 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 I think that we run a big risk by allowing ourselves to be categorized in that way, because there's a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, that people who live in sprawl and people who don't accept smart growth do that is very smart and wholly rational. It is not irrational to live in a, you know, three car garage, four bedroom, three bathroom house out on the edge of town. There's nothing really irrational about that from an economic standpoint. You're going to buy a property, essentially the Federal Reserve and the, uh, you know, the FHA and Fannie Freddie and the entire federal apparatus has ensured that it will not lose value, that it will go up in value. So, you know, you're making a rational financial decision, right? Um, in, In general, we have subsidized that lifestyle so you can actually... Uh, you know, in have essentially more bang for your buck in living in a place like that. How can we call someone who does that dumb, 
right? We're going to set it up so that you can shop at this place where everything is going to be cheaper because, you know, we're not going to pay very high wages and we're uh, going to, you know, tilt the scale so that um, it's easy to get very low price goods delivered here, but it's harder to get competitive goods delivered to other places. We're going to favor in our policies businesses that can ship things thousands of miles versus businesses that can produce things locally. You know, when, when you are a person living in that environment, it is not irrational. It is not stupid for you to actually respond to all of those incentives that are in place, right? It is, it is not, it is not dumb. And for cities who, you know, I was in Missouri last week, a bunch of city managers, the conversation was there, you know, was Chuck like, okay, we get this stuff, but how do we say no to Walmart? I mean, we, we've, we have this system where we make money off of sales tax and the state has said, you can't do, you know, you can't get money in other ways. So this is the only way we can get money. How, how, do, how do we not go after the Walmart? Okay. Are those people dumb? Uh, you, you know, because they're not doing smart growth is all of a sudden, you know, they're not smart. No, they're incredibly rational. They're incredibly rational. I, I, I draw the comparison to people who take out payday loans, right? Like I look at a payday loan and I'm like, that's, it's not a very, it's not a very smart thing to do, right? I mean, you're paying like an enormous rate of interest. Uh, it, it was really kind of a loan of desperation. Yet there are times when people do payday loans that maybe it makes some sense, right? And I certainly think people who take payday loans uh, are not, in a blanket sense, dumb. They may be desperate. They may be responding to incentives, but not dumb, not dumb at all. And so I, I don't use the term smart growth for that reason as well. It, it's, smart growth has never been compelling to me. So, you know, I, I, as someone who has worked in this profession for, boy, I'm over, over 20 years now, uh, I have seen so many things done by smart growth advocates and in, in the name of smart growth. And, you know, most recently I'll point to a concrete example cause that was a little bit, uh, esoteric. Um, I'll point to a concrete example last, last year, about this time last year, there was a presentation that I watched by the smart growth, you know, group who were arguing that the development of this greenfield, you know, way out on the edge of, a, of Madison, Wisconsin, where it was, uh, was going to be better developed as a smart growth type of thing than not because it met all these metrics. And they went through, and it was this, the same kind of thing that I go after the highway people for, right? It's taking very coarse metrics, very weak correlations, not site-specific, and then making them incredibly site specific and saying, you know, this is what's going to happen here. And of course it has no basis in reality. It may happen, probably not, uh, you know, wouldn't work out that way. It has no basis in reality. And it it sticks to the same two things uh, of, you know, the suburban experiment, the modern development, it builds all at once to a finished state in large chunks. You know, it sticks to that template and doesn't challenge that at all. It just uses kind of bogus things to get, more uh, apartments and things that they like as opposed to, uh, you know, Walmarts and cul-de-sacs that other people like. It, it's, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, in a sense, fraudulent, okay? I have seen so many things done in the name of smart growth where I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so bad. You know, apartments built in the middle of nowhere. 
uh, decorative lighting uh, on, on places that, like, what are we spending decorative lighting here for so cars can drive by and, and have it look better? Um, <laughs> we had the, the, the smart growth trifecta last, last year, two years ago in, in a little town of Wyoming we were in, Jim Kuman and I, we, we sat there and looked and it was, uh, solar panels, a windmill, a complete street, uh, and decorative lights. And it was all on like a strode out on the edge of town that serves some, uh, you know, some high density housing. And we, we looked at this and we're like, this, this is insane. Like this meets a whole bunch of the smart growth checklist. And if you're, you know, I, I, I realize that not everybody involved in the smart growth movement would call that smart growth. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing that this is not like a, a great representation, but this was done in the name of smart growth, right? Like this is what, this is what we are. This is who we do. Uh, you know, this is what we do. Um, I, I'm just, I'm, I, I've seen so many, as early parts of my career when I was doing this stuff and people would come by and say, well, this is a smart growth project. And I would look at it and say, that's like one of the dumbest projects I've ever seen. Um, you get enough of those and you're like, I don't want to be associated with that. The last two reasons, though, are, I think, the two most important ones. And the, the first one is, is this. And this is the one that kind of made people upset with me, people who are smart growth advocates upset with me. Like the other ones I can deal with and be like, okay, Chuck, well, you know, you get a, you, you get a big enough thing and some people are going to do stupid things. You know, we're not with that. We certainly don't think people are dumb just because we call it smart growth. We just think it's smarter. Um, you know, I, I, I get those things and those are fair pushbacks, you know, what have you. The last two, though, is where we have the biggest like divergence. The, the first one really deals with the core of the Strong Dance message, which is about finance, right? We, I, we, we don't have financial solvency as an afterthought. Like, it's, it's not something that, like, you know, oh, we're going to help the environment. We're going to help climate change. We're going to do, uh, you know, help with obesity. We're going to help people get around more. We're going to have increased mobility options. And, uh, you know, we hope or we think that it'll work out financially better. It's like, no, no. Financial solvency is the prerequisite, right? We need to do those other things. And I think those other things are important and, you know, very, very important. But financial solvency is like the foundation, you can have all the good intentions in the world. You can have all the good motivations in the world. You can have all the goals that you want in, in the world. But if your city is broke, you're not going to be doing much good. And so financial solvency becomes like the prerequisite. So all the time I see people who advocate in the name of smart growth, advocating for things like financially insolvent rail projects instead of financially insolvent highway projects. We're against both. Like I, I, I don't think we build, you know, just because rail uh, has the potential to be a higher returning investment than, uh, you know, an eighth and, and, you know, a ninth and 10th lane on a highway, right? Just because like the ninth and 10th lane is an asinine investment that will never pay for itself. Doesn't mean that we should go out and do something financially equally ridiculous just because we like it better or we prefer it. Uh, or we wish that it would work out better, right? We don't have financial solvency as one of many criteria. It is the foundational criteria. It is the prerequisite to everything else we do. 
And so in a sense, we, we like don't compromise on that, right? Like that is not a, a, a principle that we'll say, yeah, you know, all things being equal, we'd like the train, we'd like the sidewalk, we'd like, you know, this and that. And, you know, if we can get that cool, if the finances don't work out, you know, we, we can, we can work with you on that. This, this is not where we're at. It's got to make financial sense. This has got to make financial sense. Now in the Venn diagram, do more smart growth projects make financial sense than non-smart growth projects? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's no question. Right. But I think when we're still working with that template, build all at once to a finished state, uh, we're still working in the big finance. We're still working in the, you know, big swath of things. We're not building places that are financially solvent. I have never seen a smart growth project, a project that was presented as a smart growth project that made financial sense. I've, I've never seen one. Now I've seen a couple of new urbanist projects. I was just talking about Carlton landing in in uh, Oklahoma that's down in. And, and I think that that is a really good project. I think it makes a lot of financial sense. Um, it is certainly a good first and second life cycle project. There are some concerns beyond that. And I express those to, to the people down there. Um, but I think, you know, there are ways to make that, there's ways to make that work. And I, I'm optimistic that that kind of project will work. But I've, I've never seen one that's like solely a smart growth project. Like we're doing this in a smart growth way where it made any financial sense at all. The final one, and I think this is actually the biggest divergence. And this is the point where, uh, you know, I'm assuming that those of you who are still with me are, are not ticked off and angry. So you'll be able to be part of this conversation without, you know, emailing me about how terrible of a person I am. Um, the, the final place where I tend to diverge the most with smart growth people and why I've, I've never labeled myself or associated. I've, I've never, I've never felt compelled to describe myself in a smart way as a smart growth person is the, the role of centralized government, the role of centralized government. And it's interesting because, you know, I gave a talk last year at CNU and it was in a session, you know, uh, new urbanism and conservatives. And it was, you know, how do we, how do we reach conservatives? And I, I thought it was kind of silly, you know, as a, how do we reach conservatives? I, I'm, I don't think in those terms, I really don't. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I, I realized that many people who describe themselves conservative for all the reasons that I've described in this podcast, just, you know, have rejected the notion of, uh, you know, sprawl as the problem and smart growth as a solution and kind of lumped in with all that because they describe themselves often as a smart growth organization, why the new urbanism, uh, you know, is, is an, is an intellectual obstacle for many people who consider themselves conservative. But I describe my own political philosophy in a sense, or my own approach, uh, as, as being very dependent on the geography in which I was working in. And I describe it as a continuum between, uh, at the local level, like at my household being communal, essentially we, I live in a communist household. You know, we all take care of each other. If the one kid, uh, you know, doesn't do their work that day, they still eat right? They, they still have a bed, a warm bed to sleep in. Uh, we still make sure they have clothes. Uh, we nurture them and take care of them despite, you know, things that they may do that make them undeserving of that care. And, 
you know, in their defense, uh, sometimes I am undeserving of their love and affection and, and I get that anyway, despite my unworthiness, right? That's the way, that's the way families work. We're very communal. When you get to the neighborhood level, uh, we're not that communal, but we're a little bit more, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're still a little bit, you know, like I can borrow my neighbor's tools. They can come over and, and use my stuff. We look after each other's kids. And, you know, if, if I'm baking something and I'm an egg short, I can run over and say, hey, you got an egg? I can, I can bomb off you? Yep, no problem here, you know? So we, we do those kind of things. We live a, a little bit more communally. Um, when you get to the, 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 you know, the town level, the city level, there's a lot of times that we have to roll up our sleeves and we have to make tough decisions. And we say, yeah, you know, we're all going to pay a little bit more because we want this, or, you know, we're going to, we're going to do some things and make this work that, you know, you wouldn't do in a, in a different setting. When I get to the region, to the state, to the federal government, for sure, I, I start becoming more and more libertarian. And, and by the time I get to the federal government, I am essentially uh, a, a, a very libertarian kind of thinker. You know, I, I'm very much, you know, what can only be solved at this level? How can it be solved in the most minimal way possible? Uh, how do we do the least amount of distortion of all these local ecosystems that we have set up? Every group that I have ever interacted with at any level that has called themselves smart growth or worked in a smart growth way or called the byproduct of their work smart growth has been an organization that thought at the federal level and at the state level uh, that they should be far more active in policy. In fact, the way to overcome bad federal policy was more federal policy, but, but good federal policy. And the way to overcome bad state policy were new state policies that would be good state policies. And, you know, my gut reaction to that is there's, there's nobody who ever, you know, years ago passed state policy knowing it was bad state policy, right? Like those people all passed good state policy at the time too. Um, you know, urban renewal was a good state policy at the time. Highways through the middle of neighborhoods was a good state policy at the time. Were there people who disagreed with it? Yeah. There's people who disagree with every one of your policies today right? There's people who disagree with every single one of them. But those policies didn't turn out, right? What makes us think that we know better now? What makes us think that we've got it all figured out? I, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly leery of the notion that we, whether we want to call ourselves smart growth advocates or anti-sprawl people or what, whatever the moniker is, I would even, you know, new urbanist, Right? I'm a new urbanist. I love it. New urbanism focuses on the neighborhood level, the block level, and I think it does it in a, just a genius way. I cringe. I cringe when we start talking about federal policy. I cringe when we say, you know, oh, we've got to deal with this rule and this particular thing. And if we can only get, you know, this thing changed, uh, then, you know, we'll... we'll We'll be able to, uh, you know, stop, put an end to this thing that we don't like and, and start, you know, funneling money into this other thing we do like. And I, to me, this is like, you know, the bull in the China closet that has, you know, destroyed half the stuff. And you're like, no, 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 we got to get you to go to this side. And, you know, it's just going to go like destroy the other part of it. I, I'm not, I, 
it, it's hard because I'm not like an anti-government person. I'm not like a reflexive anti-government person. Um, I mean, like I said, I'm, we, we, I live communally. I, I really think that cities should be incredibly active. Uh, but where I part ways with a lot of the smart growth people um, is in the role of the federal government in doing this. I, I look at federal intervention in land use, in housing, in transportation as doing far more harm than good. And you know, being a far more destructive force than a helpful force. Now, that that does not make me anti-government. I, I think government has a has an important role in a lot of these things. And I think certainly, you know, we're at a point now today where as a as a society, we've pretty much decided that we're gonna have a very active federal government, you know, Chuck, get with the program or become irrelevant. I, I'm with you, I understand. Um, I just like my, you know, if I'm going to have an active federal government, uh, I like my programs simple um, and I, my, my, you know, proscriptions minimal. I, I, I am very much, and I think this puts me in the Jane Jacobs mindset, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a person who looks at cities as the central driving force of our economy. And as part of that being a central driving force, I look at cities as ecosystems. I look at them as complex adaptive systems. And so, you know, imagine you are a scientist in a laboratory and you have all these little, uh, you know, eco aquariums that you've got going on all over. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're creating, uh, different types of environments within them. They all had similar start conditions, but they're all growing in, in different ways. What's your role as the scientist in there if your goal is to have these places mature and, and prosper and be successful? Well, it's, it's to make sure that they get the proper inputs of nutrients, right? It's to make sure that they get the proper amount of sunlight and the, the proper temperature and balance and that these things are, you know, able to essentially like self-regulate and have good feedback signals. Um, you know, you're, you're more in a kind of big picture nurturing role, but what you're doing is you're allowing each of these local ecosystems to, uh, to find its own way, find its own path. Um, in, a, in, a, in, the, in, in, in the most proactive sense, you're taking the ones that are failing and you're seeding them with the ones that are succeeding, Right. Uh, that that would that would, that would be like the most proactive thing at the at the top level that I would do, right? So, to me, that vision of the way cities operate uh, is is very incompatible with the notion of you know a group setting up shop on K Street, heading down to the Capitol and spending their days trying to get you know some federal rule tweaked in you know Part Seven D. Uh, subpart three, you know, get this line changed to this as, as if that is really going to substantively change these vast, overwhelming, you know, types of things that are raining down on our cities. It was Jane Jacobs and I quoted her in the week ahead podcast this week as saying, I, I, I hate the government for making my life absurd. And I, I feel very much that same way. I feel very much like at the local level, we're trying to make things work and we're just getting fed absurdity. And I'll, I'll give you probably like the greatest contrast here. R what we have done in the name of efficiency 
in the name of, you know, growth and getting things done is, is we've taken the tax code of local governments and made it a very dumb, blunt instrument. In my city, we have the ability to do a property tax. We are not allowed to do a sales tax unless we get approval from our taxpayers and approval from the state legislature and the money has to be spent on a specific infrastructure project and uh, we can only collect the money until that debt is paid off. So, you know, right there, that's, that's all we get to do. We can charge fees for certain things, but it's very, very limited, never pays for the cost of, of what the fee is supposed to. That's, that's all we're able to do. That's it. So, you know, what happens? Well, what happens is we tend to chase anything that would give us property tax today. We'll take on enormous long-term liabilities. doesn't matter. We just need more property tax because that's the way we make money. Um, we chase, we, we use big infrastructure projects to do this chasing. Why? Because it's the only thing we can get funded, right? We can go get, uh, you know, a sales tax. We can't use that for firefighters and police officers. We can't use that to maintain anything. Uh, but we can use that for some big, huge infrastructure project that will create growth if our taxpayers agree and the legislature says, okay, so that's what we use it for. It has this massive distorting effect. And here's the crazy thing. I live in a, like a tourism area. We're a couple hours north of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Our economy here is government and tourism. And, you know, it used to be uh, construction too, but we kind of built ourselves out of that, right? So that's our economy in a nutshell. Well, we are way different than the place I'm going to be in next week, the Iron Range, right? Which, you know, has as a core mining, logging, other resource extraction kind of things. That's way different than Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's way different than the suburbs of the Twin Cities. That's way different than Western Minnesota, which is largely agricultural. Southern Minnesota, which is largely agricultural. Yet we all have the exact same tax policy with the exact same incentives. How does that make any sense? Every single city should have their own local tax policy and it should be shaped and adapted to what works in that place. The state, on the other hand, instead of having, you know, a tax code that's inches and inches thick, you know, multi-volumes with all these different rules and exceptions should have a very blunt, very simple tax code, right? Here's what we're going to tax. Here's how we're going to tax it. It's very simple. Back of a postcard. Very, very easy. Very easy to understand. And if, if that system doesn't work, if, you know, your ecosystem is not creating the right outcomes, then tweak that. Tweak that in a very simple way, right? But very simple. Very, very simple. Complex at the lower level. Oh, but, but Chuck, but Chuck, it would be a nightmare if, if you wanted to open up in one city and then go open up a business in another city, you'd have to get a whole nother set of regulations. There'd be whole new tax system, whole new code of, of re, a whole new building. You know, how, how would you do that? That's so inefficient. No, it's not inefficient. It's inefficient for Walmart, right? It's inefficient for McDonald's because they want to open up places all over the country. I mean, they want, you want to be able to come, if you're McDonald's, if you're Dunkin' Donuts, if you're Walmart, you want to be able to come to Minnesota and know here's the rules across the entire state. I just got to learn one set of rules, one set of tax structures. I just go in, bam, I know what it is. I can adapt my business model to it and I can make it work. But if you're like the local hardware store, if you're the local food co-op, if you're the local producer of something, it doesn't matter what the next city does. Let them customize their thing to yours. If, if you want to create like a, a satellite business over there, you go over there and learn that one, right? 
it's not efficient for some people. It's efficient for others. And that's the system that we've gotten into. That, that's why I have this reflexive thing from the top down. So I'm not a smart growth advocate. I'm a strong towns advocate. And that puts us in a very different spot. One where we're not against sprawl. We're not fighting sprawl. We're not pro-sprawl. I had a few people say, why are you for sprawl, Chuck? I'm not for whatever your definition of sprawl is. I'm not for it, right? But I, do, I recognize that it's not the problem. It's not the core problem. By fighting this illusion, right, you're not actually getting at the thing that is causing it. You're actually just causing the next round of problems. We need to rethink how our government works. We need to rethink how it interacts with local communities. We need to rethink how we structured our economy. And we need to do it in this environment that, like I said at the beginning, uh, has gone from partisan to crazy. I think partisan to crazy might help us because it might unmoor us a little bit from uh, the places that we've been stuck. Now, there's a high risk there, right? The risk is that we go crazy and we do crazy things. Um, that's why we're doing what we're doing here because the first thing we need to do is become unmoored from th these bad practices this bad system that is causing these really destructive outcomes. But as strong towns advocates, as people listening to this podcast, we got to share this message with others. We have to communicate with people so that we don't end up in crazy places so that we end up actually with a system that makes us stronger and better and healthier. That helps us become that anti-fragile that helps us move to a place where we can make sound investments in our communities, investments that have, high potential upside and very limited downside investments that make a broad swath of the population progressively better off over time and provide more opportunity for more people to experience success and prosperity. I, I, that We've got to be the difference maker. We have to be the ones in the trenches pushing for this different approach. So my apologies to those of you who are still with us, who uh, we're offended who love smart growth and, and just say are crushed like, oh my gosh, Chuck is not a smart growth advocate. Uh, you know, my whole day is ruined. I, I hope not. I hope not. I hope you, um, if you really identify yourself that way, I hope you continue to do so. I, I hope you just also leave a little room in there for strong towns. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back again next week with some Iron Range stuff. In the meantime, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.